0: But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches— to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the truth, the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God.
1: We had a great time Wednesday night at the Come Together event. Uh, we, we gathered together and we had a phenomenal barbecue. Uh, thanks, Kyle and Mike, uh, for staying up all night or most of the night and cooking that stuff. It was good. I mean, it was fantastic and uh you know at the come together uh we we brought to the church the first of several deliverables that uh were a part of this process and we'll be bringing these things to you throughout the the ministry year but what we brought to you a wednesday night was the mission that a mission statement that we believe god has has brought to us as a church that we can focus on, and bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and to our broken world. You know, mission is what we as a church are supposed to be about. This this speaks to what we're ultimately supposed to be doing. It provides a, a compass for our church that gives us direction and unifies us that's what a mission statement does it brings unity to a church body because there's clarity as to what we are supposed to be doing it's different than a church's vision a vision is kind of painting a picture of a better future that lets you know this is what it looks like when you've kind of accomplished the mission or that you're that you're fulfilling what you say you're supposed to be doing and the mission statement unifies the vision kind of inspires us and we'll be bringing to you in more detail in months ahead that that full vision. But I do hope that you'll go and and look and watch this video if you missed Wednesday night. Um, This sermon series on the seven letters is kind of a prequel, if you will. You know how they did the Lord of the Rings and they came back and they did The Hobbit as a prequel? Well, this sermon series on the seven letters is kind of the prequel to this mission statement because you know a major part of this process had us as a team and that team that the session commissioned, we had to step back for two to three months really and evaluate and investigate our community, our church. And we had to ask hard questions about our community and we had to ask even harder questions about our church and how we're doing ministry within this community and how God wants us to do ministry in this community. And in the same way, these seven letters, Jesus does something very similar. He is putting his eyes on these churches. He's evaluating them. He's evaluating the cities that they are in, and he's asking hard questions about them, and he is making conclusions about how they're doing ministry and the health of their church and relationship to the city that they're in. This first letter to these seven churches, and we're not going to cover all seven. I, I miscounted last week. I said there's only there's five weeks in Sunday. We're actually doing five of the seven letters. Uh, but this first one is the most important of these seven churches. It is the main church in Asia Minor, Ephesus. If you if you think about it for a moment, there's at least four New Testament books and the Bible that are written to the church at Ephesus. The book of Ephesians, the book of First and Second Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus dealing with issues in that church. And then of course, there's the book of Revelation. More than any of the other churches in the New Testament, this church gets most of the inspired writing. Um, this city was uh, an important one in the Roman Empire. To give you a little bit of background to the city of Ephesus, It's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. The population of the city itself was around 250,000 to 300,000 people. So it's very similar to the combined population of Palm Bay and Melbourne. If you count Ephesus, the city proper, and then the surrounding region, like what we would call the suburbs, its population was 500,000, very similar to Central and South Brevard County. And so there's definitely a correlation in population size. Uh, it was a very wealthy city. It was at the end of a road that had been an ancient uh, a road for the, the traders who would bring spices and goods from the east and goods from the west. would go, And they would all go through Ephesus because it was a natural harbor. And so at this point, they would go from landlocked and get on ships, and they would disperse their goods, or they would come the opposite direction. So this city became extremely wealthy, so much so that of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the greatest of them by several historians at that time, by their estimation, was the Temple of Diana that was in Ephesus. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen cities, uh, pictures of the city of, of Athens, you know they have the Parthenon, that that big, the, you know, temple-looking thing on the Acropolis, right? You know what I'm saying? Don't just look at me. Nod your head, yes, no, or Google it real fast and pull it up on your phone, right? Um, the the Temple of Diana was twice the size of the Parthenon, twice as big, and it wasn't made out of the boring rock like the Parthenon was. It was made out of perfectly white pure marble the entire structure was pure marble and when you get to the to the city what you would see As you would go up from the from the uh, harbor, was a road, and I have it up here behind me that was about 15 yards wide, that was laid in marble, and there was these columns. You see these columns every few, you know, about every foot and a half that went all the way from the Colosseum down to the harbor itself. They had so much money; they just had decorative columns along the road, and and it was beautiful. The the Colosseum would seat over 25,000 people and was a marvel of that day. This was a wealthy city. It was a famous city. This was a city that the emperor came to. They were proud of their heritage. And the church came here in we read in Acts chapter 18 and 19 when Aquila and Priscilla uh, they were co-laborers with the apostle Paul at the church in Corinth, and they come over to the tr- uh, to the Ephesus, and they begin to witness and they begin to evangelize and make disciples. And soon, late after that, the apostle Paul comes, and he spends at least two years in Ephesus establishing this church, and it becomes a mecca, kind of like a mothership church for this entire region of Asia Minor. He will ultimately assign his protege, Timothy, to be the pastor of this church. And then, as we pointed out last week, the apostle John, in his later decades, will make his home here at the church at Ephesus. Now, as we as we hear Jesus' message to this great church, let's understand something this morning, that he's also talking to us in this, in this letter. We find ourselves in this letter in various ways, as we will find ourselves in these other churches in various ways. In this first one, in Ephesus, there's a couple of important gospel applications that we need to keep in mind, especially as we start discussing and thinking about how we bring gospel restoration to the deep needs of the people in our city. So there's two applications we want to pull out of this this morning. One of them is positive, and one of them is more negative in an exhortation. So let's start with the positive application that we see in verses 2 and 3. The fact that Jesus appreciates a working church, a church that is busy working for him, that is steadfast and scripturally vigilant. He says in verse 2, I know your works and your toil, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. We should know that this church was a hard-working, busy church, had had great impact on the kingdom of God. Uh, From this church, the gospel will sound out, and from this church, other churches will be planted all around the region the other churches mentioned in these seven letters are a result of the ministry out of ephesus and there's even more in the region that we know of from the book of acts and from church history that were the result of the ephesian church carrying the gospel out into other towns and villages and the region all around them they had huge impact on the area around them they had a huge impact on their city they were so effective at evangelizing and proclaiming the gospel that within a, a few hundred years, the temple of Artemis, this great wonder of the world, will shut down. The pagan worship and everything that was associated with it, all of the, all of the obscene practices because the temple of Diana was a, was a fertility type of religion where, and with all of the sexual uh, immorality that was associated with that. The effect of this church upon the city ultimately causes this pagan worship to be destroyed. That's impact. I mean, what incredible witness they have. And they stood strong for the Word of God. You see in verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In verse 2, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves prophets and apostles, and they are not. In other words, this church was true to the Word of God. They were strong in their doctrine, in their belief. They knew the Scriptures. They were faithful to the Word of God. They were faithful to what they had been taught. They were faithful to the gospel, and they defended it against those who would attack it. In that day and age, it was not uncommon for a, someone to come through and proclaim himself to be a, a, an itinerant a prophet or maybe an apostle. Well, the Apostle Paul gave tests. He said there will be wolves, as Jesus said, there will be wolves in sheep's clothing who will come among you. And he gave instructions on how to test to make sure that what you're hearing is actually from God. The Ephesians were faithful, and they opposed false doctrine, false teaching. They opposed immorality that posed as Godliness the Nicolaitans, we'll get into more later, but this was in another sermon, but this was an early heresy, and it was linked to Gnosticism, which was rising during this era of time and was threatening the church. And in Ephesus, you had one of the primary apostles of, of uh, Gnosticism who came into this area and set up shop. And, and this church opposes Serentis, and Gnosticism, and, the, and the, the, not only the doctrine, but also the sexual immorality that was associated with it that was proclaiming it's perfectly fine for Christians to live however they wanted to sexually. I mean, let's face it, church. If Jesus were to look at us, and he were to say, he were to write a letter to us, and he goes, I look at your church, and you know what I see? I see a church that is working hard you are br- spreading the gospel throughout the city. You are planting churches all around the county in Brevard County. You are standing strong for the gospel in an age when the gospel is being compromised and being and being corrupted. When other places are proclaiming that all you have to do is, you know, have a small little commitment, say a little prayer, and God will just give you your best life that you could ever have, and everything will be happy and healthy and wealthy, and, and all of the perversions of God's word that are out there as a church covenant, you're standing strong. And even though the the culture, like with the Ephesians, is opposing you, you're enduring it patiently. The Ephesians actually it cost them their lives in in some instances, because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. And as a result, they would experience the persecution of the Colosseum and martyrdom And they were opposed by the culture. You see the culture rioting in Acts chapter 19 because they were affecting the commerce and the business of the city. And yet this church stood strong. How we would love to hear Jesus say, you're standing strong in the face of cultural opposition. You're standing strong on the word of God. Good job. You're working hard. You're true to my word. We'd love to hear that from Jesus, wouldn't we? And and by the way, I look at a church that we are a part of, I look at our leadership, and I feel like we would hear something like that because we love God's Word in this church, and we stand on it. And yes, the culture goes in a different direction than God's Word, but we are not going to apologize or back down from what God's Word teaches and proclaims. And we'll stand on that. We'll stand on it. We'll fall on it. That's who we are as a church. Yet, with all these appreciative words, there's that little dreaded word, but, in verse 3. You ever had that happen to you before? Your spouse says, you know, I really like this, thing, but, and you know, right? that everything before the but was just you know buttering you up softening you up for what they really wanted to tell you which is <clears throat> okay it, it, there's a problem right what's on the other side of the but is really important and what's on the other side of this little word but in verse 3 or verse excuse me in verse 4 and verse 5 this is an important application that we have to get this morning as Jesus looks at the church and he admonishes us and I'm putting this in language, hopefully, and I'll explain this as we go along in the message. He's admonishing us to nurture the why behind our service, our worship, and our works that we do for him. This this verse for I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. The why. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you <clears throat> and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. know, regardless of how wonderful their works were and their doctrinal integrity was, when Jesus looked at this church, he found a fault that was so serious that it threatened their long-term existence. It was so severe They may not have realized it, but it was so severe that he said, You will force me to judge you as a church, to chastise you. And actually, if you do not repent, I will remove you from the city that you have had such a huge impact on. I'd rather you not be in the city than to be in the city with this systemic fault in your church. What an admonition. What's he getting at here? Literally, verse 4, if you go to the Greek, you know, the Greek language is what this letter was written in, and literally, if you go to the Greek, what is here is, but I have against you the love, the first, you abandoned. That's what it says. The love, the first, you abandoned, or you left behind, or you walked away from it. You see, the Ephesians had abandoned, either intentionally or unintentionally, The the core of our faith, that primal, that foundational core love that we experience from God and from our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that love that we rest in, that we draw strength from, that we draw comfort in and our identity in, that love that we express to one another and that we live out into the world that needs Jesus Christ, this foundational love they had abandoned. This is the love that Jesus talks about in Matthew 22 when the religious leaders come to him and they want to know, okay, what's the greatest commandment? And how are we supposed to? And he responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this, all the law, all the prophets hangs. It's that love. And and listen, if you are are, are new to our church this morning, maybe you've come in for the first time, that that word love, this is a different kind of love than maybe you're used to experiencing. This isn't the love of a friendship. Uh, This isn't the love of sex and romance and that type of intimacy. This is a special word in the Bible that gets to the core of, of Christianity. It's a Greek word, agape, and and it's that sacrificial, supernatural love, and it just changes everything. It's the love behind God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will never perish but have everlasting life. You may have come into this church this morning as a newcomer or a guest and not even really completely know why. Maybe you came for just some other reason. Maybe you felt like there's something in your life missing. Can I tell you what it is that's missing? It's this love right here. It's this mysterious, supernatural love that we cannot generate as human beings. It has to be supernaturally implanted by God in the heart and in the life of someone who he brings to life. It's it's that love that comes about through salvation, that what we were talking about in the baptism of little Johanna, that how we look forward to a day in her life where the Holy Spirit is poured out on her life and she is brought from death to life. What are we talking about? Where God does a work in her life so that she recognizes her sinfulness and her inability to save herself. And God gives her this consuming desire to trust and believe in Jesus and to live for Him. You may have come into this church for any number of reasons this morning, but I'm here to tell you, this is the part of the message you need to cue in on, because if there's something missing in your life, and you're wondering what's going on in your life, or even as you hear me talk about love, and here go Christians talking about love, and you don't get it, it's because it is a supernatural gift from God, and you need this more than anything else in your life. And so the best thing you can do in response to what I'm saying right now is to begin to pray to God, your creator, you were created in his image, and begin to pray. And say, I don't even know what this bozo is talking about completely, God, but it sounds good, would you give it to me? And just pray for help. Now, these Ephesian Christians, it says, the love, the first, you abandoned. What kind of, what look? I mean, is he talking about their love for God that they abandoned? Their love for Jesus? Had they, had they walked away from their love for Jesus? I mean, they're staunchly defending doctrine and the faith, but they no longer really have that deep love for Jesus who they're defending? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying, you know, you, the love that you're ha- supposed to have for fellow believers— brothers and sisters in Christ, that marks, you know, Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, how you love one another. You no, know, you've walked away from that love for other, for other believers. Or, or is it that they had grown so fiercely inward-focused, protecting the body against heresy and against doctrinal attack and against all of these problems that they were having, that they had lost sight of the people in their city, that were not following Jesus, but who Jesus had died for their sins, and he intended to bring them into the family of God, and they had lost sight of the fact that they were to pour out their lives as ambassadors for Jesus Christ to those people would come into the kingdom of God. Is that who he's talking about? What love had they lost? Was it God? Was it God's people? Or was it the people that God was going to convert? The answer is yes. 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 You see, it's a package deal, folks. We, we can't say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, but now his church? Uh uh-uh. uh. I, I love God, but now his people? No, thank you. Or, I love God in my church, but man, look at those people over here that just, I mean, you're going to the temple of Diana, or look at these people over here, they're living like animals, I can, no way, and, and there's no love for the people in the city who are in the bondage of sin, who Jesus, His blood co- cover their sins, and will one day, can one day re- redeem them and bring them into His family, and there's no love, there's arrogance, there's pride, there's disdain, contempt towards the who is you see folks we can't say that we love our savior and not have a deep love for the savior's people who are inside the church or the savior's people who are outside the church and conversely if we love the people of Jesus outside the church we love the people of Jesus inside the church Jesus says you love me you see it's a package deal This type of love, now I think clearly verse 5 says, repent and do the works. Clearly what had begun to happen was the outward expression of their love had declined. Because he says, repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, the outward expression of your love, that's loving the people of God, loving the city of God, and he's going to redeem these outward works. You need to go back and start doing these things again because you've lost your first love. And to love my people, to love my city, to bring gospel restoration to my city and to the people in my city, this is how you express your love to me. Don't say you love me and ignore the fact that your city's going to hell. It's incompatible. Don't say you love me, and ignore the fact that your brother and sister is hurting, and you can't be bothered to have a ministry of presence with them. No, the love, the first, you've abandoned. How did this happen to them? This great church, how did they get here? I think you see some of the seeds of it, even In Paul's day, in 1 Timothy, when he writes a a letter of warning and exhortation and encouragement to Timothy, he was struggling. The church already had problems. He said, "The, the aim of our charge is what? Love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. And so this church was already back in Paul's day getting embroiled in controversies and genealogies and new moons. And in our days, you know what it would be like? It's getting, you know, getting fixated on you know prophetic calendars and special diets that the Mediterranean world will help you with all of your cancers and you know and all of these different things that the church and Christians get involved with, or the little petty matters of doctrine that people begin to discuss and divide over in the body of Christ. And just, you know, things that even the Bible itself isn't clear on, and for some reason we think that we have enough wisdom to make it clear. And we will go past what the Scriptures itself says. And already this is happening in Paul's day, and then by John's day, it had grown much worse. There was a sermon preached about 12 years ago by Al Mohler, and I took his sermon title and used it this morning specifically and intentionally because I want you to Google it and listen to that sermon. He does a better job with these verses than I do this morning. But he's also about 30 minutes longer than me. <laughs> so uh, he's preaching to the students at Southern Baptist Seminary where he's the president. And Al Moeller went into that seminary when it was in trouble and he. he Turn that seminary around and it is a bastion for truth and for the gospel and and in our tradition, reformed teaching. It's a wonderful seminary. Al is a wonderful man of God. And in this sermon, The Treason of Lost Love, he's preaching to all these students, many of whom are going to end up being pastors in evangelical churches. And he warns them, he says, Listen, what begins to happen is in our allegiance to the truth. And we contend for the truth and we stand for the truth and we proclaim the truth and we preach the truth and we get more knowledge and we, we try to make sure that we have it squared away and our eyes dotted and our T's crossed and then we engage people who don't think the way we're thinking and what we forget is to love them. And we're more concerned about them than we are for them. We're more concerned about what they're thinking or what they're thinking their ideology is, or what their behavior is, and how that must be corrected, than we are for them as someone who is precious in the eyes of God, who He's created in His image, who's been just as broken by sin as we have, and who needs the grace of God just as much as we do this day. He says, when this happens, watch out. You'll go across state lines to get involved in a theological discussion, but you won't go across the street to your neighbor and bring them the love of Jesus and tell them the gospel and the good news and enter into their life and become their friend and love them and show them the gospel and love. This is how it happens. Reformed churches like us, we're at risk for this, the Ephesus syndrome. I mean, because of our high view of doctrine and the scriptures and the Bible and our allegiance to living right in light of the scriptures, we are in danger of this very thing. We are in danger of what Larry Osborne calls becoming accidental Pharisees. where we engage people, and rather than being ambassadors for Jesus Christ, who love them and bring the ministry of reconciliation, we become pit bulls for Jesus. I got news for you folks. No one ever experiences gospel restoration after they've had a hunk of their backside taken out by a pit bull for Jesus. Doesn't happen. I think, uh, you know, Osborne said, inevitably being right becomes more important than being kind, gracious, and loving. To bring gospel restoration to our city, yes, we have to bring the truth of the gospel to it. But the why behind what we do, the love, this is paramount. And are we at danger of losing that first love, of abandoning that first love? Absolutely. Very commonly what happens is that the church, people like us, Christians like us, what we will do is we will elevate secondary issues in the kingdom, and we will fixate upon them, and we will build our life around something. We'll build our life around protecting the unborn. We'll throw all of our energy and passion into how we educate our children. We'll give all of our energy to a ministry of the church. A good thing that the church is doing and what ends up happening is we become fixated upon that and we begin to find our identity and our purpose for living in that secondary activity of the church or of the kingdom of God. And when this happens, We are now on the road to losing our first love. Earl Palmer, used to be the pastor of the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., wrote, the battle against idolatry in which the Ephesians heroically shone was always a secondary and never a primary concern for Christian discipleship and theology. Isn't that interesting? All that good work That's secondary. What was and is primary is the first love. And in fact, without that center, all of the secondary Christian concerns become corrosive because apart from their true center, they inevitably move toward theological specialization and, everyone say the next word with me, self-righteousness. You know what he's saying in a very nice way? you become like the Pharisees. This is a real danger. It's a real danger that we elevate secondary concerns to such a place in our life that we forget the why and we don't pay attention to the why. In church, when the the what and the why, or the what and the how of what we're doing in ministry That begins to supersede the why. This is when we're in trouble. This is when we'll become disillusioned and we'll experience burnout and defeat. this This, I think, is the most common thing that happens in how we get to this place of losing our first love. It's such a subtle path, an insidious path. It strikes people who are involved in the work of God. We get fixated on what we're doing and it can be good things. It can be leading a small group. It can be involved in youth and children's ministry. It can, be invo- it can be feeding the homeless. It can be rescuing people out of the sex trade. It can be spreading the gospel around the world. It can be any number of wonderful things that we should be involved in as Christians and as a church. But we can get so focused on what we're doing and how to do it more effectively or how to fix a problem in that ministry that the what and the how supersedes why we're doing it in the first place. And when we lose that primacy of the why, of love for Jesus and for his people, both in the church already and the ones he's going to bring into this church, when we go there, uh uh-oh, I know this firsthand. There have been times in my pastorate where I was so consumed with the problems of a church that I was in leading, or co- so consumed with issues that were maybe in a, a parishioner's life that I was so involved with the what or how of ministry before I knew it, my heart would grow cold and hard. It's subtle. You can give your hours to being on a board to try to help something be better in ministry. And before you know it, you've lost your first love. How do you know you're there? How do you know when this is happening to you? For me, I know it when I feel like all the joy in my life has just been sucked out. (laughs) And the ministry that I'm involved in and that I'm doing and what it is that I'm doing, there's no joy there even if it's a good thing and it needs to be done, but there's no joy or, I, or it's a drudgery or I have no energy for it. I have, no, I have to generate excitement for it. I know at that moment in time, you know what, I, why I'm doing this is not right. I'm doing it to please other people. I'm doing it because it's expected of me as the pastor. I'm doing it because I don't want to look bad, or I don't want to see people hurt, or, and, and it can be good reasons. A lot of times it's, I don't want to see somebody, you know, fail, or their marriage fail, or this or that. It can be good reasons why, but it's not the best reason, and it's this best reason Love for Jesus and His glory in my life, and in the life of this church, and in the life of this world. That reason, when we keep that ever before us, how it changes us. You know, you're there when you don't. When when that joy is just suddenly when when you're, you're critical of others who aren't involved, and it, you just become a gr- pretty kind of like a grumpy, cantankerous person. Right, happens pretty easily. And the good news is that in this passage, Jesus gives us hope, doesn't he? The love, the first you abandoned, but he doesn't stop there. Repent. Repent. You need to have a difference. You need to understand what's going on, Jesus says. You've got you've to have clear thinking. You've got to see what's happening in your life, church, Christian, see, Pastor Jerry, what's happening in your life. See it. Acknowledge it. Confess it. Reject it. Turn back to me. Throw yourself at my feet and call out for grace and mercy. How do you get there? How, do you, how does that happen? I just want to close it with this. One simple way. There's other ways, but this is one way. is you go back, back to the very Word of God, and you begin to pray over it, and you meditate on it. One passage I love is 1 John chapter 4. You know, John talks about love, and what does he say? Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And so repentance means coming right back to this core, primal, foundational truth These three things, faith, hope, love, Paul says, to a church like the Ephesian church that was filled with knowledge, but the greatest of these is what? Love. You have all knowledge, all gifts, all abilities, but without love, it's a clanging gong, and it's useless. In the last years of his life, the Apostle John, as an old man, the church would turn to him and ask him, Do you have a message for the church? Do you have a sermon that you'd like to bring to the church? And according to church tradition, he would stand up as an old man and just say the same simple thing. Little children, love one another. And then sit down. Little children, love one another. Lord Jesus, help that to be true of us as a church. As we think about bringing the healing power of the gospel to our community to people in our in this city and around the world people in our own church already lord may our motivation may the why between us bringing gospel restoration always be the love for you that desire to see you magnified that desire to see people who are no different than us, apart from your grace poured down in our lives. Our love for them, to see them experience the miracle of the new birth and restoration that you are doing in our lives. May that be our motivation. Love for you and love for our fellow man. For your glory, I ask these things, Jesus. Amen.